If you have your Bibles and you want to turn with me to Philippians chapter 3, you can also find the passage uh, printed in your bulletins, but we're looking at Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 to 11. If you've been with us, you know that uh, we've been going through the book of Philippians. We've been going through it verse by verse. Uh, it's been really life-giving for me to go through an entire letter verse by verse as well. And so uh, if you haven't had a chance to do so, uh, on our website, you'll notice all the sermons, uh, all the previous sermons in this series uh, posted there. So please take a listen so you can kind of get a context of the entire letter. Philippians chapter 3. Verses 1 to 11. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Amen. Uh, well, one of my uh, top five favorite movies of all time to this day is still a movie called Goodwill Hunting. Okay, it's a movie from 1997, and I realized today, actually, at the volunteer service, that we have people in our community that were not even born uh, when this movie came out. It is 22 years old now. I cannot believe that. But it's still one of my top five movies of all time. There are many iconic scenes and iconic lines from the movie that I'm sure are familiar to all of you. Uh, one of my favorite moments, though, and for those of you who haven't seen the movie, it's basically a story about uh, a 20-year-old janitor named Will Hunting, played by Matt Damon. Okay, it was one of his first kind of big break movies. And he's a janitor at MIT, uh, who, because of various circumstances in his life, um, you know, kind of got caught up with the wrong crowd, uh, had some run-ins with the law. Um, uh, he's actually a, an unrecognized genius, but he was never really able to live up to his potential. So he ends up being a janitor uh, at MIT, even though he's uh, probably a lot more brilliant than anybody at that school. And one of my favorite scenes uh, is that he and his friends kind of walk into a bar full of Harvard and MIT students, a bar where they obviously don't belong there. And uh, one of his friends, Chucky, starts talking to a girl to get her number. And uh, this rich, douchey guy walks over and realizing that Chucky is, uh, you know, Chucky doesn't belong here, starts humiliating him uh, in front of the entire crowd. He starts bringing up these obscure economics topics that he knows Chucky has no idea about. 
And if you're watching this and every time I watch this, my, like my blood starts going, my heart starts pumping because I know that Matt Damon is going to come in at any moment and, and basically make this guy look like a fool. And he walks in and all of a sudden this janitor starts going toe to toe uh, with this rich douchey guy. Okay, and he goes toe-to-toe with him and then ends up destroying him at his own game, humiliates him in front of the crowd. And we know how the scene ends for those of you who have seen it. Matt Damon's walking out of the bar and he utters those famous words. He, he turns to the rich guy and says, hey, you like apples? And the rich guy's like, yeah, I like apples. And he, he, he has a girl's number and he slams it on the window and he says, how do you like them apples? Right? And that's where we got, uh, that's where we get that term. Okay? Uh, well, I think stories like that and movies like that, all, people generally love storylines like that. We love when somebody uh, who, who the world says doesn't belong, who the world says is out there, suddenly proves and validates him or herself and says, you know what, I am a winner. I do belong on the inner circle. You know, we love movies where the kind of the poor peasant guy or the poor peasant girl all of a sudden turns out to actually be a princess and then validate and shows the world uh, who she really is. We love movies like that. And I think there's something in us that loves those moments when people prove their worth, when people use their resume, use their credentials and say, you know what, I do belong on the inside. And when we look at Philippians chapter 3, up to this point, we know very little about Paul's life. For all we know, up to this point in the letter, all we know is he's a guy who started a church 10 years ago, and then now he's in prison for his faith. Uh, you, You have to assume that all the prison guards who are around him have no idea what his pedigree looks like, have no idea what his resume looks like. And when you open up Philippians chapter 3, the first thing you think of is that this is going to be Paul's how do you like them apples moment. Because this is the first time he basically lists for us his credentials. He lists for us his resume. And, and, and the way that Paul opens this text is he comes out guns a-blazing. And he talks to the Philippians, Philippian Christians and he says, look, I want you to look out for those dogs. I want you to look out for those evildoers. I want you to look out for those who mutilate the flesh. And what Paul is referencing is, at that time, there was a group of devout Jewish Christians who were saying, not only do you have to have faith in Jesus Christ, but you also have to be circumcised to be saved. In other words, one of the things that was so profoundly uh, beautiful about the gospel that Jesus brought was that it wasn't just good news to the Jews, it was good news to the Gentiles. And you have to, you have to understand that the Gentiles were a group that was historically seen as unclean. In fact, it was actually the Pharisees and the scribes and elders, a common term that they used to describe the Gentiles were dogs. And Paul basically flips that script and he says, look out for those dogs because there are going to be people who still don't believe that you're really saved. There are going to be people who are still going to try to pull spiritual rank on you and are going to do whatever they can to keep themselves on the inside and keep them on the outside. Because they're going to say, yeah, okay, Jesus did save everyone, but I think you actually need to be circumcised. And that's what Paul's talking about when he says, those who mutilate the flesh. You see, it's kind of like how a lot of Christians that I know are treating the news about Kanye. There's something about Kanye West Uh, doing all this stuff and coming out with a Christian album that rubs a lot of Christians the wrong way. 
A lot of my friends posted on their, you know, Facebook and their social media. A lot of, I, I see a lot of eye rolls when they, when people talk about Kanye and people get super excited about Kanye because there's something about becoming a follower of Jesus and there's something about the human condition that no matter what it is, we want to keep certain people on the inside and we want to keep certain people on the outside. We want to say that there are other things you have to do to get saved. And Paul says, beware of those kinds of people. Beware of those kinds of people. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Because Paul says, because if they want to play that game, oh, I can play that game. And Paul says it right there in verse 4. He says, because I have, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. And he basically lists his credentials, and we think that this is going to be his how-do-you-like-them-apples moment. He goes one thing at a time. He starts with this. He says, circumcised on the eighth day. Now, I don't know why, uh, if you were taught, you know, boasting about your life, you would start with your circumcision, but uh, Paul does that, okay? He says, circumcised on the eighth day. For some context, uh, let me give you, uh, you know, back then in a hyper-religious society, it was considered... Uh, you were considered a winner if you were born a Jew, if you were a born a member of the covenant community. And Paul says, look, I wasn't a convert. I'm not a Gentile convert. I'm actually a, a, a Jewish. I was actually born into the covenant people of God. All Jewish boys had to get circumcised on the eighth day. And Paul says, I did that. And then Paul says, of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, Right? And uh, I could talk a lot about, give you a lot of historical context there, but I'll just say this. There were two tribes that could be traced back to Abraham. It was Judah and it was Benjamin. And Paul was, one of, Paul was from one of those tribes. So he says, not only am I pure Jewish stock, I'm also from the best tribe. And then he says, Hebrew of Hebrews which means not only what, what were his parents Hebrew and not only were his Hebrew, he also spoke in Hebrew. There were not many Jewish people at that time who could speak and write in Hebrew, but Paul could. And then he goes on and he says, as to the law, a Pharisee, he was an expert in the law. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. In other words, Paul says, take any outward observance of the law, any code, any command, any ritual, and I've done it. I've done it perfectly, and in the first century, this is the perfect resume. In a hyper-religious society, this is the perfect resume. In our times, it would be like if Paul says, look, you want to play that game? I graduated top of my class, Harvard Law. And then after I left Harvard Law, I went on and became the youngest uh, partner at my law firm. And then after that, uh, you know, that law firm was a little bit too easy for me. So then, so then I left and started my own Fortune 500 company. Uh, you know, we went public last year. And now I own a $20 million mansion in Beverly Hills. And I, I, I mean, I guess in LA, uh, the resume would be, and I have 10 million Instagram followers, right? Uh, Paul, in that time, had the perfect resume. And so it's interesting because at that point, we assume now he's really going to stick it to them. But then he does something really interesting. There's a plot twist. Because just when we think he's about to lay the smack down on these dogs, he says this, 
But whatever gain I had, I counted it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. He says all of that, everything that I just listed, my pedigree, my law degree, my earning potential, the things that once made me feel like I was in, it's worthless. And he's not being falsely modest here, you know, when someone gets called out for their accomplishments and they're like, oh, no, 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 it's not a big deal. No, he's not being falsely modest. And we know that because in the very next line, he says, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. That word rubbish uh, is from the Greek word skubalon, okay? And it's basically the closest thing to profanity that we have in the New Testament. Paul was an astute biblical scholar. He doesn't just drop crass words here and there, but he's, this is showing us that he has no other word to convey how he feels about his past accomplishments than this word rubbish. And the way that it can be translated is really human excrement, feces. And Paul says, this is how I view my resume, this perfect resume that would allow me to hang with any circle that would allow me to get into any gathering that would allow me to get me into any group of friends, I consider it rubbish. Now, before you automatically kind of say, wow, what a noble guy Paul was for giving all that up, I want you to really think hard for yourselves. For those of you who are parents, uh, I want you to think about, uh, you know, if, if one of your children ended up with a resume like this. Or if you don't have kids, imagine if this was you. Or imagine you knew someone who had a pedigree or a resume like this. I want you to think about your high school. Think about the person who won the most likely to succeed award. The person you said there was something special about him or something special about her brilliant person. They're going to do amazing things with their life. They have all the credentials. I mean, they have all the upside in the world. And imagine you went to a reunion 20 years later and you asked your friend, hey, whatever happened to that one person? And then your friend said, oh man, you didn't hear? Uh, she's actually, she actually tried starting a church and then she ended up in prison because she was a Christian. I guarantee you most of us here in the back of our minds would sigh and say, what a waste. Most of us would say, man, he or she had so much potential and, and they're in prison now? What a waste. And I think the fact that we would respond that way reveals two things. One, I think it reveals the fundamental need of every human being. It reveals that the fundamental need of every human being is to belong, is to get on the inside, to prove themselves. And then I think the second thing it reveals is that every culture, every society has a blueprint for what getting in looks like, for what winning looks like. And we organize our entire lives from birth to death in order to follow that blueprint of winning. Right? If you don't believe me, think about uh, when you guys went to college and, and filled out what? An application. What is a college application if not an opportunity to prove whether or not you belong at the university? 
After, after four years of college, you get into grad school and you submit an application. What is that if not an opportunity to prove that you deserve to study with other great minds? After grad school, you get your first job and you submit what? A resume. What is that if not an opportunity to prove that you can do the job, to prove that you belong in this industry, to prove that you're worth a certain amount of money? We live in a world where uh, I would say the majority of single people are now on online dating and sometimes for fun. Uh, you know, I'll go on my friends, you know, I promise it's not for myself, but I go on my friends' uh, online dating profiles and I like to browse it. And it's crazy because it's just a resume after resume after resume after resume. What is online dating? What are those profile if, profiles if not an opportunity for you to say, I am a worthy boyfriend, I can be a worthy girlfriend, I can be a worthy spouse. And there are people on the other side judging whether or not you belong on the inside based on your appearance, based on your investment portfolio, based on where you went to school, then they will make a decision of whether or not you will be in the winner circle or in the loser circle. And this starts at a very, very young age. This week, my four-year-old daughter, Avery, came home from school, opened the door, and she said, Daddy, guess what? I got invited to Rocco's birthday party. And I said, who the heck is Rocco? And why do you care about going to his birthday party? And then my wife was like, no, no, no. Rocco's that really cute kid with a, with a really cool parents. And I was like, Rocco, good job. You got invited to Rocco's birthday party. And I realized that from a young age, we're ingraining this mentality even into our kids. That you have to be someone, that you have to have some kind of credentials, you have to have some kind of resume to get in. And no wonder something like what Paul says here in Philippians chapter 3 is so difficult for most of us to swallow. I think for many of us, we place those standards on ourselves. We put our resumes, we put our credentials, we put our accomplishments, we put how good of a mom or dad or son or daughter or sibling, and we validate ourselves. And we assess whether or not we're a winner or a loser. And the sad thing is so many people today are shutting ourselves out. I talk to a lot of people uh, who've been struggling with deep depression, anxiety, feeling like a failure. And it's always that. That they have taken the blueprint for what our culture says is winning, for what the perfect resume looks like, for what the perfect pedigree looks like, and they use it to shut themselves out. It's a scary thing. They use it to shut themselves out. And Paul is saying... It's the same rat race, it's just different standards. And this is what Paul defines as righteousness that comes from the law. Now that word righteousness, uh, when we read the New Testament, it's easy to kind of gloss over that word because it seems like a very Christianese word. Uh, we don't use it much today unless we're talking about someone's self-righteousness. 
But righteousness is not referring to someone's morality or their good deeds or their ability to live a good life. In the Bible, when we see that word righteousness, it's actually referring to someone's legal standing. It was actually a legal term. In Greco-Roman society, two people stood in front of a judge. Each person pled their case and gave their side of the story. And at the end, the judge would determine who was, quote, in the right. So the judge would say either I will validate your testimony and con- or condemn your testimony. The judge would determine you're in, you're a winner, or you're a loser. You are righteous, you are not righteous. And this is what Paul talks about when he says a righteousness that comes from the law. Because again, in a hyper-religious society, to, be, to have Paul's resume you would go stand in front of any court, any court of public approval, any court of law, and the judge would definitely look at Paul and say, you are in the right. But what is so profound of what what Paul is saying here in chapter three is that he says, look, I have a lot on my name, uh, on my resume, I have a lot behind my name that can get me in anywhere I, I wanna go. I will be the first person on any RSVP list to any party, any event, to any gala. But Paul says, you know, I'm not looking at this life. I'm looking beyond this life. And in verse uh, 11, he says that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. And he's saying, yeah, I have confidence in the court of public approval. I might have a case that I'm in the right if you pit me against anyone else in my society. But there will be a day when I will stand in front of the creator of the universe who demands absolute and utter perfection out of me. And the fact that I graduated top of my class is laughable. And he says, I know that day is gonna come and I'm not sure that the righteousness I have on this earth is gonna be enough. And I think for a lot of us, those of who live our lives trying to pad that resume, I guarantee you at some point you will find that it is never enough. Your home will never be big enough. Your marriage will never be good enough. Your job will never pay enough. You will never have enough. And if you don't believe me, I want you to talk to any person in your life who you feel like has reached that, that winner status for whom you would look at their resume and you would look at their credentials and you would say, that's a winner. That person's in for sure. And I want you to ask them if they truly feel like they have enough. And I guarantee you they will say no. That there's always a higher mountain to climb. There's more money to be made. There's more people to befriend and network with. Uh, There's a famous New York Times article entitled Wealthy, Successful, and Miserable. And in in the article, the author who graduated from Harvard Business School talks about how she got to got to HBS and she treated HBS like it was a winning Powerball ticket. Like she felt like, man, once I graduate from this place, this is gonna get me anywhere I need to go in this life. It's gonna get me in 
everywhere. It's going to open doors. It's going to open opportunities I never had for myself. And she talks about going to her 15-year reunion and meeting up with her classmates and realizing that every single one of her classmates, as much as they had done, as, much, as many companies that they had started, as much, as much money as they had made, she realized everyone was unhappy. It's what David Foster Wallace calls a deep stomach-level sadness deep within each and every one of us that says, nothing is ever going to be enough. We're never going to be satisfied. And so we keep going and working and climbing, never knowing if at the end of the day, all this stuff is worth anything. Now, what I find really interesting here is that Paul doesn't say, everything I once saw as gain, I see as less important, right? He does, he, in light of Christ. He actually uses the language of a financial audit, okay? So think about a P&L statement. You have profits on one side, losses on the other, and I want you to think about your own life, and what would you put in the gains column, and what would you put in the losses column? Some of you might put in the the gains column uh, the fact that you went to a good school, and you might put in the losses column, you know, uh, didn't have a great relationship with my parents, Uh, You might put in the losses column, uh, you know, I kind of got involved with the wrong people early on in my life. Um, You might put in the losses column uh, some of the bad things that you've done. And yet notice what Paul puts in the losses column. He puts this entire resume, this list of his greatest accomplishments in the losses column. They are liabilities to him. The things that once made him a winner, he's saying, these are the things that make me a loser. And I want you to think about that because I think for a lot of us, when we think about faith, it's usually faith tacked on top of all the good things happening in our lives, right? Uh, a lot of, uh, for a lot of my single friends, they come up to me and they say, Jason, met the perfect guy. Uh, he's smart, great family, loves to travel, Uh, great job, a lot of security, and he's holy. He loves Jesus too. And it's like, this is the really good stuff, and then the the, I mean, the cherry on top is that he loves Jesus. And yet Paul doesn't say these are still good things. He actually says, I see these as liabilities in my life. I see these as losses, and why? It's because of this. You know, when you're actually a good, a nice person, when you're a generous person, when you're actually hospitable and good and smart and charming, good looking, there's, some, there, there's a mindset that creeps into your mind that says when, it, when problems happen and when suffering happens in your life, you can fix it. It's the great, it's the great like evil that works against the gospel, this feeling of self-sufficiency. You talk to someone who has nothing, and when, when, when tragedy hits their life, their first thought is, I'm screwed. I need help. But if you talk to people who have great experiences, if you have people with a great, a great network of friends, and you know, they lose their job, and they say, it's going to be fine. It'll be fine. I'll figure it out. I'm a smart guy. I'm a smart girl. I have a lot of experience. I have a lot of connects. I can get in wherever I need to go. C.S. Lewis has a great quote, and he says this. 
He says, if you have sound nerves and intelligence and health and popularity and a good upbringing, you're likely to be quite satisfied with your character as it is. Why drag God into it, you may ask. A certain level of good conduct comes fairly easy to you. You are not one of those wretched creatures who are always being tripped up by sex or dipsomania or nervousness or bad temper. Everyone says you're a nice chap. And between ourselves, you agree with them. You are quite likely to believe that all this niceness is your own doing, and you may uh, easily not feel the need for any better kind of goodness. Often people who have all these natural kinds of goodness cannot be brought to recognize their need for Christ at all until one day the natural goodness lets them down and their self-satisfaction is shattered. In other words, it is hard for those who are rich to enter the kingdom. All throughout the Bible, Jesus is so clear that upwardly mobile, free-thinking, smart, good people are actually the most lost. In the prodigal son story, who's actually the lost one? Is it the prodigal son or the older brother? Jesus, oftentimes throughout the gospel, says the tax collectors and the prostitutes are closer to the heart of God than the scribes and the elders. Why would he say such a thing? It's because the scribes and the elders, they can always appeal to their education. They can always appeal to the fact that they understand the Torah, that they understand the law. Tax collectors and prophets, uh, tax collectors and prostitutes, they have nothing. They have nothing to appeal to, and Jesus says they're closer to the heart of God, they are closer to the kingdom of heaven than the scribes and elders. And I'm, as sad as this is to say, I, I'm looking out, and when I think about our church, I'm looking out at a group of good-looking, well-to-do, smart, capable, upwardly mobile, working professionals who have done great things with their life. And Jesus says, beware, because it's those kinds of people who suffer a lostness of the worst kind. They suffer a lostness of the worst kind. Do you ever realize that a lot of times you hear testimonies of people and you expect them to say, oh man, you should have known me in my college days. Uh, all I did was get smashed and drink and do drugs and you know, I was so far away from the Lord, but then over time I came back to church and then I started going, you know, joining a community group and I started doing good things. It's always bad to good. But we always know, we, we know that famous saying that Jesus didn't come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people alive. He didn't come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people alive. And what Paul is saying is, I'm not even going to talk about my bad things. He didn't come to, I, under, I know everything that I've done is sinful. I'm going to talk about my good deeds. I'm going to talk about my righteousness. The, 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 why the gospel is so profound is that it doesn't just go to the worst parts of us. It actually goes to the best parts of us and renders them unclean. One of my favorite passages is, is from the book of Isaiah. When Isaiah comes face to face with God in all his utter perfection and holiness. And the first thing Isaiah, who is a prophet, he's basically a pastor in his day. The first thing he says is, woe to me, for I am a man of unclean lips. Why that is so significant is that Isaiah is not saying, woe to me because I'm just a really sinful, bad person. He's saying, I'm going to the best parts of myself. I make a living talking to people about God. And he goes to his lips and he says, I'm a man of unclean 
lips. And this is what Paul is saying. He says, the problem is not your sin. The problem is your righteousness. The problem is your false belief and the false notion that you believe you're a good person. You believe your good works and your smarts can save you in this life and in the next. And if you don't believe that that's what you think, I want you to think about the first thoughts that come to your mind when a loved one suffers. Or when you find out that, uh, you know, just an amazing, one of your favorite people in the community is going through a difficult time. The first thing you say is, why that person? Or why do bad things happen to good people? Because there's something in us that believes that the way we live our lives here on earth or our resumes warrant certain kinds of treatment. That is in every single one of our minds unbeknownst to us. So how do we get out of this mindset? And Paul gives us the antidote to that when he says, to be found in him. In other words, Paul says, I can be running the rest of my life and I could be chasing this righteousness that comes from the law for the rest of my life, but I know that deep down inside, the only way I'm going to be righteous is if that righteousness is given to me. If that righteousness comes not from me, but I am validated from the outside. We look at Jesus Christ, and he was the only person who ever walked the earth who could boast the perfect resume. He was the only person who truly had the greatest how-do-you-like-them-apples moment. He never sinned. He never said a harsh thing uh, in anger or bitterness. He always spoke the truth in love. He was compassionate, he was kind, he was loving, he was perfect. But do you know how this Jesus saved the world? He didn't save the world by getting on the inside. He didn't save the world by becoming a winner. He saved the world by becoming a loser. Because he took that perfect resume and he gave it all up. And he sacrificed it and he laid it all down and he, and he hung on a cross and on the cross of Jesus Christ, the most amazing thing happened. That for those who place their faith in Jesus Christ, he did what is known as the great exchange, where he traded his perfect resume for our imperfect resumes. All of our sin, all of our anger and bitterness and jealousy and envy hung on the cross with him. But not only that, all of our good deeds, everything that we would raised as a, as a flag of confidence, he took all that as well. All those imperfect attempts at crafting the perfect resume here on earth, he took that and he died for it. So that one day when we stand before a perfect judge and we give an account, those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ will appeal to Jesus. And when, when God looks at us, he will not see our imperfect resumes, he will see Christ's perfect resume. Um, one of my best friends, um, for, his, for his protection, in case he ever listens to this sermon, I will change his name here. Um, this one's hard, though, because the story only works with his name. Okay, uh, I'm sorry, Sonny, but uh, uh, one of my best friends from college, Sonny, he tells this great story, okay? And uh, he went to a high school where, at his graduation, uh, 
you know, when they announce your name to get, you know, to come up and receive your diploma, they always say everything you've accomplished uh, during your four years in high school. So, you know, if you were like the valedictorian and won all these awards, they might say something like, uh, Sunny Lee, valedictorian, um, you know, Optimist Club, student of the year, you know, uh, Lions Club, most valuable student, um, you know, badminton president, you know, whatever. They, they'll, they'll list all your accomplishments. Well, he was one of those overachievers in high school and had a lot of stuff to his name. Okay, and everyone, it's kind of like a, a badge of honor. Everyone waits for this moment at the graduation where there actually happened to be a girl at his school uh, that was called right before him also named Sunny. Okay, um, and she actually was someone who didn't really care too much about high school, uh, kind of partied all the time, didn't do much. And so uh, during the graduation ceremony, the, the person reading the names kind of messed it up. And so it was the other Sonny, it was the girl Sonny, and she goes, you know, Sonny, so-and-so, and she just lists every single one of his accomplishments, and her family sitting there in the crowd like, oh my gosh, we, we, ne- we never knew, we never knew this about our daughter, this is amazing, wow, she was doing all this? Um, and then they get to him, and they're like, Sonny Lee. Silence, and he's like, he's like, no, no, I worked so hard for this moment. Why, why? And you know, the person calling names like, just, just go, just go, just go, just go. It's kind of a funny example, but in some sense, uh, you, you know, he told he told me that he saw her actually taking pictures after the graduation, and she was just she was living in that moment. You know, I mean, she she just embraced it. You know, she didn't even try to deny it. And as funny as that moment is, in some ways, that is very similar to what our relationship with Jesus looks like. That when that day comes and we stand in front of our creator and he will say, give an account, what is your testimony so I can see if you are in the right? At first, we may try to kind of open our mouths and prove ourselves. We might try to list some of the good things we did that time we gave some money to that person on the street, we might try to do that, and yet the Bible says when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, all of a sudden, the person starts to list everything that Jesus did and counts it to us. Jason was kind. He was always loving, always compassionate, always generous. He laid down his life for the sake of those around him. And in that moment, we will be humbled because we know it's not our doing. We know it wasn't because we followed a blueprint or we tried to prove ourselves or we tried to validate ourselves. We will know that it was a righteousness given to us. It was a righteousness bought with us on the cross of Jesus Christ. I just want to close today um, with these words from one of my favorite hymns. You know, when Jesus came into the world, he re- redefined what it meant to be a winner or a loser. He took everyone who thought they were a nobody and he brought them into the winner circle and he told everyone who thought they were a winner, think again. And I love these words from the hymn On Christ a Solid Rock I Stand and it's from the verses, it says this, when he shall come in trumpet sound, oh may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless stand before the throne. Let's pray.
God, I know that uh, for many of us, we're tired because so much of our lives every day is spent trying to get in, trying to prove that we're a winner, trying to prove that we belong, trying to carry out the blueprint of success that this culture has given to us. And so many of us find ourselves so tired, exhausted, because we realize that it's never enough. We're never going to be the parent you call us to be. We're never going to be the friend you call us to be. We're never going to do our jobs perfectly. We're never going to feel perfectly satisfied. And so we keep running. We keep climbing. We keep thinking that we will one day have our how do you like them apples moment. Not realizing that it's meaningless. That these things that we might see as gains, what Paul calls, are now losses in comparison to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. God, I pray that the gospel would become so beautiful for us as a church that our entire community would begin to take on that mindset, that we would see all of our accomplishments and our credentials and our resumes, and in light of being known by you, of being found in you, of having a righteousness that is not our own, that we, we would begin to hold the things of our lives loosely, that we would be able to give ourselves away, knowing that these things will not satisfy us, knowing that these things uh, are ultimately trivial in the grand scheme of things. So God, we pray uh, today that as we close with these songs, that Jesus would be beautiful, that your work on the cross, your life, the life that you gave up so that you would give us, grant us your perfect resume would be beautiful for us today. We thank you for this word, and in Jesus' name we pray, amen.